0: D20 Radio, your gamer's rog.
1: www.d20radio.com Welcome to OpCast, arms around the Trinity Continuum. Our podcast is in-depth reviews of the books covering everything from first edition to the newest story path edition of the books published for the Trinity Continuum, including Aeon, Aberrant, Adventure, and more. Our hosts are me, Josh Heath. I'm Scott Cuban. And I'm Chaz Kellner. Today, we'd like to shout
0: out another member of the D20 Radio Network, this time the Primed by Cortex podcast, where JT and Kirby focus on interviews with Cortex creators, as well as discussions about the Cortex Prime system. They also cover Cortex news and announcements, answer listener questions, and record actual play sessions. They have good production, and while I don't play Cortex or have not yet played Cortex in its current iteration, their podcast is a fun one, so go check it out. Find them and all the other sh- great shows at the D20 Radio Network at d20radio.com. So today we are continuing our
2: coverage of Trinity Continuum Aberrant, and we are focusing on the last couple of chapters. These are some pretty short chapters, but they have some pretty vital and interesting information in them. We're going to start off with the story guiding chapter. And Chaz, I believe you have some things to say about it.
0: Yeah, so this is a, a short and focused chapter. It contains, as one of the things that I found about storytelling chapters or game mastering chapters in RPG books is a lot of them spend a lot of time on the basics and thanks to the core and splat model that we have for Trinity, where Trinity core gets to cover the basics for storytelling, everything in this chapter gets to focus hundred percent on storytelling for Aberrant and not anything else. And so that, that I think is a real benefit to a chapter that doesn't have a lot of word count, but has a lot of ground to cover. So they open with more on tone and genre, uh, talking about how to pick a tone, how to choose a subgenre, some of the storytelling beats for each of the subgenres. This was kind of interesting because it separates this part from the rules uh, associated and descriptions for each of these genres. And I'm not sure that it, it really benefits being separate from the other genre and tone content that's presented earlier in the book. I kind of wonder if this is just a, a relic of the way that OPP has always organized books of having a separate storyteller chapter with the storyteller considerations, Um and whether it may have made more sense to, to pull this in with the other genre and tone content. But it's fine here. You can flip back and forth and have a, a complete understanding of tone and subgenre. Um, there's also some advice for creating scenarios. Uh, this does have some general prep guidance, um, but emphasizing presenting the player's choices. Aberrants are powerful. The, the core question on the book is, what would you do with the power of a god? That means you have to make choices to to highlight that. It also gives a little bit of advice for when things go sideways when you're running a game, which is always helpful information. It talks about handling powers and that you should play to your character's powers by creating scenarios that will let them be awesome. Again, this is a game about characters with power using that power to change the world. So give them the chance. Then it does talk about changing the world and how to handle that. It talks about evoking the core theme of sacrifice that kind of regardless of tone or subgenre, sacrifice needs to be meaningful and a part of the game. And then talks a little bit about allegiances, playing campaigns with mixed allegiances or uh, single allegiance, uh, how to play without it. And saying that if your characters are not part of one of the allegiances, don't forget them entirely because they're a part of the setting. And I think this is all useful information. If I ha- were to have one criticism, uh, it's that the word count here is really limited. Uh, I think a lot of these topics could benefit from uh, deeper uh, exploration, but that, of course, would require more words. And there's only so many so many pages in a book. So that's that's what podcasts can step in for, right? Indeed, absolutely. <laughs> what do you guys think about the storytelling chapter for Abren? I think it's solid.
2: I mean, I, I agree with you that they could have gone into some stuff with more depth uh, and granularity, but I think that it hits the it hits the hits, as it were. It gives you a very good description without, as you mentioned, without having to retread stuff from basic storytelling and basic game mastering, and really gives you kind of like the brass tacks and the, the necessary advice for the tone and the style that they're trying to evoke with the whole game. I think definitely the most important chapter for people to read, I would say, especially if you're kind of tied into the whole Trinity continuum as a whole is the evoking sacrifice chapter, because that is like, that is where it it says this is part of the Trinity continuum. And this is the big part where we deal with this particular theme that is big in the whole of the, series. So I think that that's probably an important one to look into because that is really where the themes hit home.
1: And I think my suggestion or my appreciation for this chapter is in explaining the tone and the subgenres. I think it takes what was a fairly extensive and much longer version of that from first edition and says here is the core information you need and it breaks it down in a much more effective way where i can understand how a four color game can be as espionage laden as a game as a more cinematic version of a game can be espionage as well those aren't actual different types of supers genres But they're playing on both a larger tone and then a specific subgenre. And I think it's really well explained here in a way that is very effective and very helpful for a story guide to learn and integrate into their game. So those are the things that I would say, hey, read this as well and really understand how it's going to fit into the things that you are playing and presenting to your players.
2: Yeah, so unless we have anything else to say on the story guiding section, we can go ahead and move on to opponents and allies, which these are stat blocks. By and large, what we have here are the very useful Trinity Continuum style NPC stat blocks, which are a Godsend for running games. H- having run some Trinity Continuum games, I love having these available because they're very quick. They get all the information that you need in a very short chunk. And the specific ones here are mostly like when they're dealing with baselines, we're mostly dealing with like criminals and soldiers and like the kind of people that Novas might run into, especially if they're of a crime fighting bent. And then we get weirder stuff like enhanced baselines and non-human. And then we do get some NOVA antagonists. So that's sort of the overall of what we get. I think, like I said, these are all really good. If you know you need if your PCs are gonna run into something that maybe you haven't entirely planned for and don't have a, a fuller stat block ready for, what they have here can be tinkered with and re-gone over pretty easily to come up with damn near any scenario that you're going to run into. So I think they did a good job. I think as far as more detailed stuff, it should be noted that a book that is in the works is called the Proteus Nova Compendium, which is going to have not only stats, but like profile information and NPC information on every NPC mentioned in this book. And I believe they hit the stretch goal to have every first edition Nova that was ever mentioned in our first edition updated to second edition and fully statted out.
0: That's a lot of characters.
2: That's a lot of characters. So if, you're, if you are serious about running Aberrant and serious about using canon characters, while this section is very useful, that book is going to be your bread and butter.
1: Yeah, I am thrilled to get that book in my hands because if that book was not going to exist officially, it was going to be my StoryPath Nexus project nice to do exactly (laughs) that so when they were like hey we're doing this officially i'm like thanks guys that (laughs) saves me a project that i would have been excited to do but i'm glad that they're doing it for me
2: well it is vitally important that we have sloppy joe stats so
0: i'm very important Another thing that this chapter presents is some organizations talking about organized crime, like the kuro Tech, as they, they split off from the Yakuza, who deal with in Nova technology, as well as Nova cults, the Church of Michael Archangel, the Church of the Imminent Eschaton, Kamisan Buddhism, the Cult of Mal. They talk about the philosophy of these at, at times in earlier places, but also talk about how these organizations can be used as antagonists here in this chapter. And I think it's useful to present antagonists not just as individuals, but who are the organizations behind them, present plots that can be filled with these, these organized threats.
2: Yeah, I think all that information is really good and useful and it, you know, it, it gives you just that extra little bit of information on how to run them uh, and how to utilize them as a story guide.
0: Also, if you weren't sure this was a comic book game, the non-human antagonist section includes a robot, a drone, a tiger, and a cloned dinosaur.
2: I don't want to cure cancer. I want to turn people into dinosaurs. That's all I have to say about that. It's fantastic.
1: (laughs) (laughs) One of the best lines in comics right there. (laughs)
2: Absolutely. (laughs) And it kind of gets, not to go into too much spoilers, but it kind of gets lampshaded a little bit in the latest Spider-Man movie they do kind of make reference to it so i'm happy about that
0: oh I, I have not i have not seen that yet i am still uh, avoiding public cinema so i have to wait till it's available to stream so uh
2: it is one of those ones that i would recommend that you watch as soon as possible it is so good i i have heard that we also get some stat blocks on talent and psyod antagonists uh, which are very useful uh, once again if you want to put your fingers out into the greater continuum and deal with things that aren't explicitly Nova, but you get some basic stat blocks. They use, they use Nova powers in order to emulate like psi powers, which is a tried and true thing that, you know, has been happening since the days of Vampire the Masquerade for Lupines and is used in pretty much every book. You use the rules that are in the book that you're holding to emulate things with the, with the note of, Hey, if you want to use these other rules that exist, they're in these books. Go buy them.
0: But it's nice because it lets you use these things without needing to have the other book. Or if you just need to throw a psychic down on the table, who is your Psyad, your you don't need to go dig out your Aeon book uh, for that immediate encounter. It gives you the quick way uh, to, to get at what you need.
2: Yeah. And the going back a little bit, the Nova antagonist section is... Pretty bare bones. I think, like I said, the Proteus Nova compendium is going to be your really go-to book for Nova antagonists and Nova NPCs. They do leave out some key details like power tags and and the like when they talk about these these guys. But for a quick and dirty I-need-a-Nova antagonist, the, the ones that they have here are pretty useful.
0: Josh, any other thoughts about the antagonist chapter?
1: I love the way this stat blocks are done in story path. That is the only thing I have to say. It makes it so much easier if you're a content creator as well to just be like, here are the, the quick stats you need for this thing or this idea. Please do this for every game. It is so much easier than having full stat systems for NPCs. I don't need all that. You know, It's just not helpful for me as a storyteller. So thank you. Indeed.
2: So we're going to put a little warning here. We're not going to talk about it right now, but we are getting to the section where we're going to talk about the, the storyteller secrets. We're going to take a, a little brief sojourn to talk about the art because we haven't done that yet, but know that that is coming. We'll give you another brief warning. So if you don't want to hear it, we'll give you some time. But before we get into the secrets, let's talk about the art.
1: So from my perspective, the art in this book is absolutely fantastic. It is just comic booky enough to be clear that this is a supers game but it is definitely cinematic comic booky. It makes me think of the Marvel Cinematic Universe or uh, other worlds similar to that. It makes me think of things like The Boys and Invincible and other really, yes, very comic booky, but they've got some, some cleanliness on the art that is clear that this is like newer, modern sort of storytelling using that medium. Um, and the comics within this book are all absolutely fantastic and when I got the early version of the book before they had finalized the physical copy it didn't have some of these comics in it and when I finally got them and read them I was blown away by a couple of them particularly the one before the setting secrets chapter which I will talk about when we start talking about that because it is a doozy I was gonna
2: I was actually gonna mention that because you're right it is a doozy
0: yeah, if you're familiar with Onyx Path or White Wolf books, they often have a, a chapter opening art and fiction. And what they do instead for Aberrant is they have a chapter opening comic for every comic. And they're really good consistently. It highlights a bunch of, of characters. It, it shows kind of some of the key moments and conflicts. They're just they're fun, well done comics. The other art that I really like is actually in the appendix in the Nova architect creation. Each of the archetypes gets almost a signature character-esque piece of art. And those are all really, like, every one of them, like, you look at it and you're like, oh, that is a cool and interesting character. And so, so those are very impressive as well. I particularly like the art that we
2: get in the profiles, the little profile paragraphs that we get scattered throughout the book that kind of gives a headshot of individual NPCs. I think those are all really nice that kind of give you, once again, like Josh said, comic booky but also realistic and modern and so you know these are these are people these aren't just like cartoon characters these are people and the art really represents them very well
0: on page 55 there's also a, a piece of london fog being a badass um, mm. <laughs> and that's a really strong picture indeed it is i mean yeah like i said josh you stole the my
2: favorite that i was going to talk about but yeah. Any other comments regarding the overall art or specific pieces?
1: None for me. I just think it's really good. And I'm glad that they got the artist that they did for this because they clearly had a love for the medium as well as a love for the property. You can kind of tell that in some of the art. hmm
0: It's good and it's consistent. So sometimes uh, you'll, you'll see a couple distinct styles in a book and they don't necessarily fit together. Uh, And that can be okay for some media, but, but for this, like you look through and it has a very consistent look and feel across the art that both is consistent within the context of the rest of the Trinity Continuum art, but also has a distinctly comic booky, aberrant feel.
2: So I think that is our cue to move on and transition via that beautiful comic that Josh was going to talk about into the storyteller secrets or the story guide secrets section. So indeed, if you are final, yeah, if you don't want to know, stop right now. Yada yada yada, arms around the continuum. You're good. Okay,
1: okay so we're gonna talk about setting secrets now. And to start, we're gonna talk about the comic that I believe begins on page 272. And it is Divis Mall, or Dr. Primoris, writing a letter to Maxwell Mercer about how he started the Nova Age. And don't you think that I have succeeded at all these amazing things? And then he throws that letter away in a fire. And I got to tell you, this gave me chills because I knew from first edition that this was a truth of the setting, Mm -hmm. but you don't, you don't get the same sort of clear, this is true thing from first edition that you do in this, where they're just like, this is true, deal Mm -hmm. with it. And I'm like, thank you for making that super clear. And then thank you for doing this comic because it is exactly what I needed for all the emotional layers of this story.
2: Absolutely, like whenever you hear like this is this is Divas Mall at his his presented at his most like true and honest and vulnerable self. Like every other time you hear Mall talk, he is on he is on he is talking to his herogen. He is in Magneto mode, and like you know he is he is the quantum god that he believes himself to be. Here you
0: get, I think, his actual voice. And I l- love it. Yeah, it, it shows a vulnerability to him. And it really speaks to the opening line of the, the Divis Mal section in the uh, chapter, which is you could almost feel bad for Divis Mal. Mm-hmm. Uh, so why don't we talk a little bit about Divis Mall's history and how it's presented here? I just have to call out one thing about this
2: comic: that it's the fact that when he's talking about he's talking about Max, but then he's talking about his granddaughter Margaret, Margaret Mercer, who is the leader of the Aeon Society in this era. The fact that he has a picture of her on his desk is such big nemesis energy. <laughs> who? does that and i just i love it i adore the fact that he has a picture of his like current like person he clearly respects but hates the hell out of on his writing desk where he writes his personal letters
1: yep it is such a Divis mall drama mm -hmm. moment it is so good Perfect.
2: Yeah, so they start the setting chapter with a brief history of the inspired, which goes over kind of the events uh, of adventure, which obviously they detail out more in the adventure book, and they do reveal in text here, Divis Mall is responsible for End Day. He built a machine that not only uh, created novas, but it broke through an energy barrier that was placed around our solar system by the Doyen, which, if you've heard our coverage regarding Aeon, they are an alien race who doesn't like competition and does terrible things to either suppress or destroy races that begin to show power. And he got tired of that and he fixed the problem in the most bombastic and world-shaking way ever. And you're right. He does go into the, you could feel sorry for Divis Mall. It talks about his history. It talks about, you know, the fact that he was a homosexual man in an era where such a thing was so suppressed and demonized that they didn't really have proper terminology for it. How that shaped him into a person who is pretty much done with unexceptional humanity, as far as he is concerned, because he is suffered under the oppression and disdain of unexceptional humanity for most of his life, which is basically what you get as kind of the defining reason of why he is the way he is and why he holds the opinion he does, which is a beautiful, tragic, a sympathetic character motivation that I think is is the reason why Devis Moll is such an intriguing character and not just a bargain bin, Magneto.
1: Yeah, he is you can care for him and you can understand him. Magneto, when Magneto first came out, was very understandable. He has become so over the years, people say, and I agree with that. Like you can look at Magneto and go, I empathize with most of Magneto's reasoning. Mm-hmm. And Divismal from the beginning is very much, uh, I can respect and understand where he's coming from. And that allows you to play the Terrigen much more humanly, for lack of a better term, than you would if you just take them as four color supervillains. They are not, they are a very understandable group who have very understandable motivations. And yet they're still coming to conclusions that could be considered bad or evil or whatever, or even completely philanthropic, depending on your view on those things.
0: Well, yeah. I think I think this kind of highlights one of the complaints I've heard about comic storylines today. It is that they almost have to make the bad guys go over the top because otherwise their motivations would seem too resonant and too right. Uh, mm-hmm. And why are the good guys fighting against them if 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 these are the things they're fighting for? In recent memory that happened really strongly in Falcon and the Winter Soldier, like the antagonists were not fighting for for a bad cause and some of the quote good guys were were definitely also stepping into means that were we're not okay and and i, I think that puts the harogen in a really interesting place because they they almost don't need it. having the extreme elements within them makes it so that like it drives the conflict even for the ones who are not willing to go to such extremes
2: yeah i mean that's that's kind of the the paradox of of, you know a lot of modern problems is that the idea that the extremists while tend to be lower in number are louder and their actions are blown out of proportion in, in according to the actions of the moderate members of the same group and you know where how why do you paint the brush when you're dealing with you know, factions that include extremist members who do terrible things. You know, how how much responsibility do you put on the moderate members who may not agree with their extremist brethren, but still have a degree of kinship with them and a degree of solidarity with them? You know, how much do you blame someone for not holding back? And I think that they, they by painting and the and the Terrigen that he created in this very nuanced light, which even more so from first edition, in some degrees. Although we get a lot more detail about the Targaryen in the in the first edition book than we get in this book. They were, you know, '90s and edgy back then, and now, even now, now they're even more nuanced and principled and multi layered. So I, I look forward to getting more and even more information about the
1: updated Targaryen.
2: Do we have anything else to say about Divis Mall from this section?
1: He has arms.
2: He does in fact have arms. <laughs> never forget it. I'm going to stop bugging Ian about it, but never forget that he has arms. Next, we have a short section on Maxwell Mercer. Once again, we get a whole lot more about about this guy in Adventure, uh, so look forward to that. But this basically tells us what he's up to. And one of the most interesting things about that we get in this section about about Ma- Maxwell in this section is the, the kind of the revelation from that the famous phrase, your legacy is our future, which is spoken in the future by Divis Mall upon the the execution of the Exodus when all the novas and aberrants leave the planet. We get the revelation here that that was not what it is thought to be, which is a threat. Rather, it was an admission that Max was right. And I adore that addition. I adore that nuance, because once again, it makes the setting more nuanced and more layered rather than pure Silver Age comic booky. But basically, we talk about Max, and he is up to his up to the same thing he's always doing, which is. Making little tweaks here and there, working mostly behind the scenes in this era to shape things so that humanity survives the war that he has seen is inevitable. And I, I like that. I like that he has a he has a light presence in the aberrant era. era. I think they do a good job overall of keeping the big characters a couple steps away from the main action. It gives your PCs rooms room to be the heroes and room to be the protagonists, but I do like the information that we get here. Do you guys have anything any comments on Mr. Mercer's up and coming doings? I just, just is like. time travel done right. Yep.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah i don't have anything to say to that i was going to say something <laughs> similar chaz yeah.
2: and and then we also have a new, a briefer section about the third member of our superpower trio of important people here described as dr corona bush which is saraswati Kaur, who become i'm mangling I'm this mispronouncing saraswati car barano who once again, we find out more information and in Adventure about where her origins, and we find out a lot more about her as she becomes even more important in the Aeon era, but this is the psionic member of the trio of people who got affected by the Hammerfist explosion. And she, much like Max Murphy is staying in the background, doing things to research psi and quantum, getting in touch with other psyads uh, and trying to basically circling them around herself to kind of keep them protected and using them to help further her research because she more than anything is a character who wants to understand the truth regarding humanity's powers and its evolution. She doesn't seem to have much of a of an agenda in regards to making big moves, but she definitely wants to know what's up. She wants to know what this whole inspiration thing is all about and what's the reality behind it what i like the
0: suggest i like the suggestion that they have of using her as a patron for a mixed or syad only uh chronicle during the aberrant era of having syad's talents and nova's working together and and working with her guidance I, i think that offers a really interesting campaign possibility
2: yeah she's a fascinating character i have i have yet to really use her in anything that i've done but i I definitely think that that's going to change when i start
1: running aeon yeah wait (laughs) until you get prometheus unbound that is all i am going to say (sighs) because that book with her wow Anyway,
2: hopefully it'll be out by the time your listeners are hearing it and you're not just like stew potting like me waiting for it waiting for it to show up (laughs)
1: I The one thing that I like about this description of her is she hasn't developed quantokinesis yet, mm-hmm. which is odd to me. It makes me go, oh, she has other psi powers, which in theory, when she becomes the the proxy of the quantum order, she is locked from increasing those her powers in those pa- in those modes. but at this point, she might have more psionic powers than any other of the proxies do, because she developed them prior to being locked down by the Prometheus chamber. That is a potential, like, huge thing for you to play with if that's something you want to get into. Like, there's, you can do a lot with her character, power-wise. Yeah,
2: Yeah, she is definitely a secret powerhouse, and, you know, definitely probably one of the reasons why the Doyen did what they did to her, which, you know, they're evil, and it's not justified in any way, but, you know, they are definitely... It's it's on model for them to do that sort of thing. Next, we get some information about the Aeon Society. You know, this book definitely talks about the Aeon Society more than it did in first edition. We get a whole faction about the Aeon Society if you wanted to use them in as part of your game actively. But here we get some more behind-the-scenes information uh, about what they're up to. Specifically, they're the hidden movers behind the big showy thing that is Project Utopia. And we learn a little bit more about sort of the, the implications of what product, Project Proteus is up to. Basically, you know, the fact that while they aren't doing anything near as evil as they did in first edition, the fact that they are making plans to counteract and take out Nova's could
0: be a controversial thing. This, uh, is, this is where I wish we went a little bit deeper onto that. Like it says, Project Proteus is planning for contingencies that they hope never happen, but to to make, not not necessarily to make Aeon in particular more evil or or duplicitous, but to make the conflict, the inevitable conflict kind of more inevitable and more understandable. Uh, I would have liked maybe another half a page about the lines that Project Proteus is crossing in preparing for this war and what are they doing that that we would say, "hmm, I understand the motivation that 's not not okay in the same way that we get for the, the terrorism mm-hmm. i I actually
2: couldn 't agree with you more. I think back at the beginning of our coverage of this book, I mentioned that you know nostalgia is a curse, and this is specifically what I was talking about. The metaphor that i 've used before is you've got first edition and it's a big circus tent. And the big central pole in the middle of that circus tent is the fact that Project Utopia is up to some nasty shit. And that is then the the mud that can be thrown back in the face of Utopia by factions like the Terrigen and the Aberrants. It means that it's not just a one-sided conflict or that one side has, you know, more reason on right to be saying and doing the things that it does. And I think that by removing that element and not replacing it with, with more information and more, things, just like what you just said, Chaz, more lines that Proteus is crossing in different ways. It kind of removes that central pole and doesn't replace it with anything as, as substantial. So, you know, you can still have a great circus. It just means the high wire act isn't going to be as exciting. Um, That's that's uh, that's a clever little metaphor that I thought out over the course of a couple of months, and I keep using good metaphor. (laughs) Yeah. Any thoughts about Project Proteus and the Aeon Society, Josh?
1: I just think I agree with you that this could be longer. We need uh, a book, maybe, on the Aeon Society as a whole. Because there's lots of pieces that are just kind of not there that would be really helpful. And I would even be comfortable if that book were like across the ages, the Aeon Society Mm. um, would be an interesting way of doing it rather than having it be aberrant specific or something like that. Um, The,
0: The other thing that I could see being a really cool way to do that would be to do a faction book. So it's not just the Aeon Society, but you you get the deep dive on the Aeon Society, on the Terrigen, on the elites, on the movers and shakers of the aberrant era, all in one book. Or split it up, like,
2: say, like you have a, uh, you know, an Aeon versus Terrigen book, or, you know, that way we get the, the deep level of stuff that we get without having to do that. Um, maybe... And this is just speculation, just based off the title. Maybe we might get some more Proteus stuff in the Proteus Nova Compendium. Who knows? Uh, That's the title of the book alone indicates that this is like a Proteus book to some degree. So hopefully, we'll get a little bit more information of just that nature.
1: That would be great. We'll have to see. I like this next section. is very short on the Teragen, on the secrets of the Teragen. The very first one being that the Terrigen are older than you think they are. Mm -hmm. And uh, Jeremiah scripture met with Michael Donegal in the 1950s. And I love that they give just enough information for you to have uh, this background. But again, without knowledge of first edition, I think I can, I would read this and go, I don't really know why it matters that scripture and Donegal were lovers and then are sort of off and on, not at the moment. Like it's not as impactful without knowing how important that relationship is from the first edition material. Yeah. Uh,
0: Can you talk a little bit about that? Because that's not a
1: piece that I'm familiar with from first edition. Yeah. So scripture is one of the the major leaders of the Terrigen. He is effectively in charge of the Church of Maul. And he, at least in first edition, he is very much the, he is in love with Maul. And in, but in this very like, he recognizes his faults and his uh, successes and sees a future for him as this great leader and a, a bit of a messiah figure in a way that he holds him on a, a higher pedestal than anybody else's. And then there are people below scripture within the church who are even more fanatics about Maul being this messiah figure. And you have some of the stirrings of that here in this book, but not to the degree that it is like a tentpole of why the Targaryen has this religious religiosity within it. That is really important, I think, to understanding some of those elements, the spirituality elements of the Targaryen. And Teras doesn't make sense as a philosophy without the religious elements, I think. And that all is all first edition. With hints of it here in this version of the of the game,
0: hmm, that sounds like something that would fit into a
2: Terrigen book. It absolutely would. And <laughs> another another interesting thing about scripture is this is something that Ian revealed on on the Discord. The Quick start, not for aberrant, but for Trinity Core. If you read it just right and like peel away the clues, the the ultimate person who is behind the events of that is Jeremiah Scripture. Basically, making proto aberrant, proto novas. You, the idea that scriptures up to stuff is layered in other places, which I am very cool all about. Next, we get the Sao Paulo blast, uh, which is something that is, was mentioned in sort of the history. It was a big thing, killed a lot of people, and they don't, they did not give a canon explanation for it. This is, I think, what I talked later about the tent pole being removed and not replaced. This is what was sort of swapped in for the big conflict. It's basically a big mystery. And it's interesting in its own right. They give a lot of possibilities for it. Like I said, there's no canon answer for what caused the Sao Paulo blast. All we really know about it is it killed a lot of people and it resulted in the death of the fireman. And they give a couple of good options. I think it's a very interesting mystery. Just the fact that it, it's something that happened in the past and is not some not necessarily is something that is an ongoing conflict makes it less interesting to me.
0: Yeah, I usually really like when we get options instead of answers, which oh, yes. is what we get here. But because it happened a while ago in the past. And because there isn't one answer, there isn't the word count to explore how is that still relevant in 2028? What what are the, the tendrils that reach out from those possibilities? Because I think each of those possibilities is an interesting story hook in its own right. But can't be carried forward because none of them is the true answer. And so I, I almost think it would have worked better if it was more recent, like if it was a January 2028 disaster rather than years in the past. And so you still have the the fallout uh, from this event would have made the the options version of it more compelling. Again, this may just be a word count challenge. Uh, where if we got maybe another paragraph for each of those possibilities, it it could draw it into the present, but we we don't have that word count. So it doesn't have the same punch that like the setting secrets of what's going to happen in the near future in Aeon gives us, for example.
1: So what I think would be interesting is this is an opportunity for a community content creator to take this and make adventures or scenarios that are tied into the blast that are all different reasons for the blast and that have all these different knock-on effects, but are connected to it in some way. That would be the interesting angle that I would encourage someone to take with it and that you are moving backward in, this is a thing that is happening now today. How does it connect to the Sao Paulo blast? Let's do an investigation on that and then go back and deal with the issue that we've uncovered that is connected to it and do that in several different scenarios. And if you
2: want to be really ambitious about it, tie it into sort of the the Trinity core issues of maybe all of these are true, and this was such a big thing that it actually brought in other versions of the continuum. So you're not just
0: dealing with, okay, what happened, but what version of what happened? Ooh, so like if the blast punctured the barriers between the versions of the continuum so that the blast reverberates across all of them and makes the different causes and outcomes for the blast true in a way that bleeds over. That sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah. And it would also be, it would would mean that novas might not be
2: the right people to deal with it. Yep. Like they would be definitely be be the white ones to deal with the, the the ripple effects. But as for the root cause, that would be a thing where you have talents in the Aberrant era Having to drill down into their own weirdness in order to factual figure out the problem.
1: Run that game, please.
2: That, would be cool. <laughs> that sounds cool. As as long as we're pitching games, I recently had one when I was going over the Assassin's stuff that they've been releasing, oh, as a God. of uh, an Assassin's game where the goal is to prevent End Day by taking out Divis
1: Mall. Oh, that would be cool. Yep, yeah. it'd be a it'd be a roughin, but it yes. would be cool. Yeah, there is one last setting secret here, and, let's, and it's big, but let's kind of tackle it in this quickly, in that it's the future and the aberrant war. And it presents some of the, these are the things that could occur. That they, they quote unquote, if you run into Aeon, these are canon events that happen. You do not have to run any of these. You do not have to assume that any of these things occur colonization doesn't have to occur the war itself doesn't have to occur this Terrigen purge doesn't have to necessarily occur but it all supposed to will be supposed to occur if you are going to run Aeon as if it is inevitable so these are all things that you can set up and then have your characters change or just have them be inevitable situations that then they have to deal with depending on how you want to run it
2: I think that, you know, they they have a section of like this in the Aeon book that, you know, points towards potential future settings. And I think that the way that they do that, both in this book and Aeon, is really good uh, because it sort of gives you the basic scenario of this is what happens, A, in our core continuity, in the sort of the meta story that we are telling with these setting books. And B, this is what happens If PCs don't intervene in various places, because, you know, you can definitely run a thing where, you know, the focus of your game is pretty narrow and it changes one aspect of what happens, but the rest of it pretty much goes on as described, or, you know, they may change things so completely differently that the whole scenario changes. And then you're in a different slice of the continuum, but I think it's really well done. It gives you the information that you need. If you are trying to cleave to Canon for lack of a better term, although everything is canon in the training Continuum. But core canon is, is what we're talking about when we're talking about the, the words on the page here. So yeah, I, I like this little section. It gives all the details that are necessary to kind of keep the tapestry going
0: on into the next section. I thought the Aeon version of this was stronger. I mean, they're both, they're both well-written. They both cover a lot of ground. The reason I think the Aeon one was stronger is I could see a way to take the future fates section of Aeon and run that as a campaign. Like mm-hmm. you can run it event to event to event with the same group of characters and have a good compelling storyline where your group of Scions can have a big impact on, on the path that things take. The Aberrant Era one is a little bit more messy there's a little bit more role to play for the canon characters. And there's certainly space for your characters to uh, get involved around that and and shape things, like you said, with the Terrigen purge. But it's less clear how I could take each of these different things and have a campaign that goes through all of the the big plot points, the way that we have in Aeon. And that may just be a, a result of the messiness of the aberrant era, of the inevitability of the aberrant war, uh, because the whole point of, of of what Max is trying to do is get us to survive that or stop it, and and we know that that fails, but we also know that that it doesn't go the way uh, Divis Mal wants either, and so maybe maybe that's the point, but mm-hmm. like I, I want something that I can grab onto and and play through instead of five different campaigns. At least that's kind of how I'm feeling. Yeah, this is the this is the 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 weak point of it
2: being the middle of the story. Uh, yeah. It is you know that this is kind of where things are the most set in stone, and obviously we'll talk about this more when we talk about adventure, and they go into detail about why things are the way they are and why certain things are as inevitable as they are uh, when they talk more in detail about Max and his powers and how they work so it makes se- it makes a lot of sense when you read that in context, but it is still the middle chapter, and there's a lot of inevitability and the fact that the 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 aberrant war itself is something that we're probably almost definitely never going to get onyx path material on. Uh, it's all going to be per your story guide because I I can see why they do that because it would be so very difficult to encapsulate all the various possibilities of what the aberrant war could be, and you know leaving it in the hands of the story guides gives those story guides the most freedom to do what they can without being constrained to a specific timeline of events. Definitely. Yep. So we have reached the end here. I think the only thing left that we have to talk about briefly is we something we talked about when we talked about character creation, which is the click Nova uh, creation appendix uh, that has all of those beautiful pieces of art and little stat blocks for essentially Paint by the Numbers Nova characters. I know I love this. I love this as a, as a concept, as an idea, as a toolkit. I think that they, they, they give us a good variety of options, both in terms of archetypes and options within the archetypes. I think it's a wonderful tool and a great addition to Aberrant as a whole.
1: Yep, I think it's fantastic. It's very useful. I'm glad that they provided that.
0: So that wraps up our coverage on Trinity Continuum Aberrant, the core book. Josh, if people want to find you, where can they do that?
1: People can find me at Podcast Werewolf on Twitter, where I mostly talk about Werewolf the podcast. But you can also find my posts about you know, Trinity Continuum stuff and things like that there. So that is the best place to find me.
0: And Scott, where can folks find you? Folks can find me at Similacra
2: RPGs on Twitter. That is the Twitter account for my actual play studio, Similacra Studios, which you can find on Twitch and YouTube at Similacra TV. I do a lot of actual plays and a lot of Trinity Continuum because it's my favorite of all favorites. And finally, you can also find me at the Polyhedron RPG Discussion Podcast, where I am a co-host
0: and we just talk about RPGs in general. So yeah, that's where you can find me. And if you want to find me, you can follow me on Twitter as at Chaz, uh, where I tweet about the RPG books I'm reading, the geek media that I am consuming, and other thoughts, uh, including all of the various podcast projects that I'm involved with. The main one de- these days being the Pain in the Dice podcast, which is an RPG variety show. Sounds great. And with that, keep your arms around the Trinity Continuum.